Uh, could you imagine if uh, you went to work and come back home and your house had been bulldozed? Uh, if you went to the bank and uh, your security deposit box had been seen, the wall had been seen and you couldn't get your documents or your money out. That's the voice of Timothy, who I met selling real change on the streets of Seattle's downtown. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast looks at a question that affected Timothy and many others throughout Seattle. How should the city deal with tents and encampments in public spaces? This question is important to our community's homeless residents hanging on to their last few possessions, and to the business leaders and residents who encounter unsanctioned encampments on their commutes, near their homes, and in their parks with increasing frequency. Today's episode features Daishi Kim Hawkins Jr., an activist and organizer of Nikita Oliver's 2017 mayoral campaign. We, we are fighting for individuals that are on the streets. We're fighting for individuals that are unshelterable, so fighting for our own futures as well. Um, I'm, I'm not exempt from being one accident, one health scare, one you know, job, job loss away from finding myself in similar situations. You'll also hear from Ian Gordon, business manager of the local 1239 union representing Seattle Parks and Recreation employees. The main way that it has affected our members is just because we're the ones that are cleaning up the encampments. These interviews give you unique perspectives on a controversial issue facing the city. This entire season of Seattle Growth Podcast has been dedicated to the topic of homelessness. The season gives you an opportunity to learn, feel, and get inspired by some of the actions people are taking to chip away at Seattle's biggest challenge. In the previous episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from City Council Member Mike O'Brien. And so at the same time, we're figuring like, well, I need to fund more housing. I need to fund more shelter beds. I need to fund, you know, the outreach workers to engage with folks to make sure they know how to get into these shelters and, and beds. And I look around to who to tax, and you're right. It's like taxing, you know, a senior on fixed income who may own a house that may be worth something, but they don't have enough income to pay their taxes, their property taxes. That doesn't feel right. You know, if they're on the verge of losing their housing, that's not good. You also heard an in-depth interview with Timothy. Everything is so intermittent between the organizations. There's no, there's no, um, how would you say that? There's, they're not organized together. If we could put everything together, you know, pull the money together, and do it in an organized fashion, uh, I think more could be done that way. Now, before we transition to today's interviews, I'm excited to share news of my next project. I've teamed up with talented filmmaker Stephen Fong to develop a feature-length documentary, On the Brink. On the Brink tells the story of an important part of Seattle's history that is in danger of being lost forever. Visit facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm for more details. That's facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. Like and follow the page to be among the first to hear of where you could see the film. Now, join me as I sit down with Daishik Kim Hawkins Jr. I am here with Daishik Kim Hawkins Jr., a noted activist here in Seattle and a member of the, the rising Seattle People's Party. Daishik, thank you very much for joining me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start just tell me a little bit about yourself. I think most notably, uh, recently helped run Nikita Oliver's mayoral campaign here in Seattle. That was a crazy experience to run that type of, initially a message campaign that quickly transformed into a very viable 
um, we have a real shot at winning this type of campaign. That's the most recent kind of big public thing that the People's Party did. Um, we're continuing to organize around different issues, um, homeless sweeps, the No New Youth Jail movement, um, a lot of the the fight for a better um, funding for a lot of public schools, especially on the south end, notably like Rainier Beach High School, et cetera. Um, and we're, we're just continuing to work. And I think for my avenue, I've been really focused on the homelessness crisis here in Seattle. Um, but yeah, the People's Party is, you know, as, as you can guess, made up of organizers. And we're all kind of doing our thing, forming around the table every Sunday to discuss uh, different tactics, different um, strategies around how to go about these issues. And um, it seems like we're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And it's it's been a crazy ride. I think a lot of times uh, people see my name or Nikita's name a lot out there because we're pretty active on social media and we know that's how we get access to a lot of our information. Um, but that's not the case for every member of the People's Party. Some people aren't as active on social media, so you probably won't see their face out there in the front lines as often. Who's involved and what's still going after Nikita Oliver's mayor campaign? Yeah, I think uh, there's a clip out there somewhere um, about our, you know, technically our concession speech, but we called it a victory speech um, when the votes were finalized in mid-August. And, you know, we just we barely missed the primaries by under uh, 0.4% of the votes. And, you know, really proud of the work that we're able to do, but knowing that um, this was just the beginning. And like I said, um, we were organizers long before the People's Party was formed. Uh, a lot of us came together because we believe that uh, possibly the next step was to take over some elected official seats and really change policies from a, a tactic that a lot of us, you know, I'll be honest, a lot of us don't really and, you know, a lot of us still don't really believe in the political process or, you know, the institution of um you know how politics are formed today and you know there's a lot of progressive candidates out there and their voices are getting louder especially with our current presidential administration um, at the same time we know that the system is not built to serve the most impacted the most marginalized people and you know we're going to continue to work whether it's running more candidates for local offices or it's continuing to push grassroots efforts um we, we are still doing it we were doing it before the party was formed and um even after nikita's campaign um you see a lot of us still doing as much as we can to make seattle as equitable as possible so tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey what's kind of shaped you or inspired you to give so much of your time and effort to this cause yeah um, so i grew up in hawaii uh Born to immigrant parents, um, my dad being um, half black, half Korean, um, but from Korea, he's a war baby uh, during the Korean War, and my mom being a Korean immigrant herself, and uh, both growing up in pretty harsh circumstances, um, in some extreme poverty, things like that, and, you know, immigrating to America to try to form, start a new life, and, um, you know, I, I myself grew up in Section 8 housing, I grew up um, not knowing, you know, as a kid, you don't really know uh, how poor you are, I guess, because really what you're comparing to is what's next to you. Um, but, you know, not, as I got older, I, I realized just how much of a struggle it was to survive um, in the situation my parents were in. And, um, you know, it's we were fortunate enough to never have to be 
you know, end up in a situation where fully unsheltered, but we're definitely in a lot of financial scares. Um, and even now as um, a single individual trying to survive in the city, I moved up here initially for grad school. Um, that didn't really work out. Um, and doing some homeless organizing in Hawaii, um, I continue to do that here and got connected with some of the members of the People's Party before it was the People's Party. And yeah, it, it's it's a passion of mine. We see the same crisis happening back in my hometown in Honolulu in Hawaii. Homeless sweeps are happening there too. The affordability crisis has hit an all-time high there back home as well. Um, I can barely survive here in Seattle. And if I move back, it'd be the same case. And, you know, a lot of us, we we are fighting for individuals that are on the streets. We're fighting for individuals that are unsheltered, but also fighting for our own futures as well. Um, I'm I'm not exempt from being one accident, one health scare, one you know job job loss away from finding myself in similar situations. And uh, if if we don't fight for people right now, a lot of us are going to find ourselves in similar situations. So tell me a little bit about what you've done um, advocating and fighting for the homeless. Yeah, most recently, um, I've been pretty active around doing some research and finding out what the best method is and what methods we're currently using um, to handle the crisis we have in our city. You know, a little over three years ago now, former Mayor Murray um, announced a state of emergency around homelessness here in the city, and we've only seen the problem get worse. Um, and I've I've been reaching out and I've been going to encampments and trying to find out what's actually being done to help these individuals. And um, we've all heard about these encampment cleanups, removals, or best known as the sweeps. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, there, there, I think about in October, November, I got word about um, the upcoming week's homeless sweeps schedule. Um, and Ravenna Woods just happened to be on the on the list. And I wanted to go myself to check it out and meet some individuals and check out what the situation was. Um, so I head down to Ravenna Woods. And this is after we've built some relationship with multiple encampments. Um, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of the times we see on the street um, homeless individuals being being white, especially in these encampments and um, getting to know a couple of encampments, especially Ravenna Woods um, pre-sweep. I've seen a lot of black and brown folks at that encampment that um, by the time the the sweep actually happened, a lot of them ended up being scattered, arrested, being displaced, even from a situation like being at a homeless encampment. And so when, when I went over there, there was a couple of dozen individuals at Ravenna Woods who um, really found that place as a safe place. It was out of sight, out of mind on a private road. Um, there were leaders in that community who kept the place clean um, and, and we got in close and when they got first um, notified back in November that their encampment was going to be removed in early December, um, there was a sense of panic because um, a lot of those individuals um, had either got kicked out of shelters, they were barred from different places and really this was a last stop for a lot of them. Um, and we tried our best to advocate to the city that um, this encampment uh, there was no justification to remove it. Uh, but we're, unfortunately, we lost and the the sweep ended up happening anyway. And right now, since that sweep, I think that was their second or third sweep that happened within a couple of months. Now we're in 2018 and the Ravenna Woods encampment has been swept over six times. And, you know, we spend a lot of money on this. There were 191 sweeps in 2017, averaging $53,710 per sweep. Um, about 1,500 tents were swept in 2017. 
we you know with the budget that we have with the sweeps we spend about a little over 10 million dollars a year on the sweeps according to seattle's budget that's about 570 individuals that we could be housing with decent or permanent housing and i've worked with these individuals i've been to these encampments multiple times um, where a lot of us are on first name basis um they call me when we need to gather more resources for them so there's a lot of different things that are happening um, and money being spent, but not directly helping the individuals in these encampments being displaced. Um, about 42 people, now 43 homeless individuals have died in Seattle since 2018 started. So let's talk about uh, what you call sweeps in terms of uh, removing encampments from public lands. Is it ever acceptable to, to move people off public lands in your mind? Uh, that's a good question. And I think there is some misconstrued... Uh, things when we when we push to end sweeps when we push to stop forcibly removing individuals from the only shelter they have access to there are definitely situations where it's unsafe for the individual to to be at a certain place for example next to a highway or um, a place where there yeah there is a legitimate high crime that endangers maybe other community members or situations etc um, but we know that that's not always the case, often not the case. And um, what I'm advocating for is to go back to the drawing board. And is there a way to make a clear distinction on encampments that are really actually putting individuals either staying there or around that area really, really in harm's way or not? Um, currently, right now, according to the MDARS, which is the policy where the sweeps fall under in the city, um, one of eight things need to happen for the city to justify removing an encampment. Um, anything from hazardous waste around and or criminal activity, like I mentioned. And oftentimes, um, well, all the time, the city has to name one or multiple things that this encampment is doing or has. And But, you know, there's not a lot of accountability going on. There's not a lot of transparency. And, and that's what activists are advocating for, is that, yes, there are situations where we need to help individuals move to a safer location, but is that really the priority of the city? And when you see somebody who's made an, an encampment and you see that they're now told that they need to move, how does it make you feel or what's your reaction when you see that happen? Yeah, I mean, I personally known a couple of individuals who've passed away because or directly from a sweep. You know, I know uh, my my friend's son who my friend she's also an, an unsheltered individual who was staying near an encampment in ballard and her son got swept out of his tent and they're both indigenous people you know and the irony and the heartbreak about that is just it that's tragedy right there and um, her son got pushed out and needed a place immediately because it was in the middle of winter it's freezing temperatures and the, the closest place he could find was, yeah, next to a highway, the very place where the city doesn't want encampments to be at. And he just thought it was just going to be for one night. He didn't know where to go. He barely had a tarp left, let alone his, a tent. His tent got destroyed. Um, and that night, uh, a car hit him and he passed away. And he, he literally got swept the day before. They offer shelters by simply saying, hey, there's a couple of shelters that have open beds. Like, you can check it out. No follow-up, not making sure that they actually have access to shelters, not seeing what different different barriers that these shelters have for individuals. It's not the most accessible thing to enter. Uh, I, I myself, not an unsheltered individual, can't. I don't qualify for every shelter either if I wanted to go there. 
And so there's no follow-up. There's no checking in on individuals. It's really just destroying their belongings, destroying their tents, destroying everything they have, their source of heat, and giving them a generic list of shelters that may or may not have openings that day and telling them good luck. And if they don't cooperate, they'll get arrested. And I've seen arrests happen too. I've seen during the week, cops come out and give out $500 to $1,000 tickets. I don't know. I, I don't know what we're doing. I, if, are we helping the homelessness crisis directly? I'm not sure. Are we criminalizing poverty? That is something that I know is happening for certain in Seattle. You're passionate about the issue of homelessness. You're, you're giving your time and your energy. Um, and you've got people listening to you right now. What would you ask of everyday people who might might not think of themselves as ever being in danger of being homeless themselves? Yeah, I, I mean, not to get too uh, philosophical, but I mean, it's really interesting just uh, meeting a lot of these mm, individuals who aren't necessarily a paycheck away from seeing themselves in similar situations, who are actually a lot more comfortable financially being here in Seattle and you know who who are they surrounding themselves by you know it's a fear-mongering works when xenophobia is running rampant you know and these individuals that you know I've attended numerous town hall meetings especially on the north end just to just to hear the other side you know try to humanize the situation for myself just because um you know like you mentioned before we started recording like yelling back and forth is not always the best tactic so i've sat in these meetings and i've sat in these town halls where community advocates are screaming for more police presence in their neighborhoods you know where when they're when they're crying out saying that they can't take their daughter to the movies because they're afraid that there are needles on the ground you know and we definitely have a an also an opiate crisis you know we definitely have a lot of you know different nuances that are making it difficult for people of all classes to stay here in seattle um at the same time it's it's a lot of these individuals who've never shared community with individuals who are in situations very different from them i i've been a homeless advocate for a long time um, but I haven't always been the type of advocate that shared in direct community with these individuals facing these crises. And until I started doing that, um, I started to realize it's it's really them that need to be the lead on, you know, the advocating of the situation of the homelessness crisis here in Seattle. It's it's these individuals that need to be in the center of this conversation. You know, we need to be hearing from them um, this rhetoric of, homelessness is a choice and they're drug addicts or they're crazy mental like mental health like those things may be true for for a handful of individuals but that's not true across the board and even if it is true you know we need to really look at the root cause of these issues and too often i see even elected officials who are writing the policies that we all have to fall under not even have one meeting with these individuals that are going to be affected by this. And that, that blows my mind. I mean, it's 2018. And for that to still be the practice that we are participating in, um, I think it's really sad. What would you ask of businesses here in Seattle as it relates to the homeless? I mean, one thing is uh, what we're asking businesses is exactly what we're pushing with this head tax. Um, we need the top 1% of businesses to pay their fair share um, and to give back to the community that they're extracting resources from. 
you know, I hear all this rhetoric from Amazon and big businesses, corporations like that saying like, we provide X number of jobs, we provide all these things for the community. And if, if you're going to make us pay any money, any to this tax, then, you know, we're going to threaten you and leave or stop construction or whatever. But my question is, how many of those jobs are jobs that are directly sourced from community? How often does Amazon or Google or whoever, Microsoft, go into these communities like Rainier Beach High School and start apprenticeships, internships, all of that? Like, how often does that happen? Not often. You know, how many of those jobs are given and shaped and molded for youth and community members who are themselves seeing displacement and gentrification happen in their own neighborhoods. A lot of these jobs are outsourced from other places. Um, and I mean, we've just seen the article, Seattle is the fastest growing city in the last 10 years, right? And are these corporations like Amazon really helping the community and the city that uh, the headquarters is in and helping those direct people who are impacted by the affordability crisis here in the city? I don't think so. And so what we're asking these corporations too is to be accountable to the very city that um, they're contributing to pushing out. You know, um, they're contributing to the rising house crisis. Uh, more and more we're seeing black and brown communities being pushed further south, south, south. Um, and now after this head tax is formed, now Amazon saying maybe we'll go south and do more things down there where there's no tax. Isn't that where our people got pushed out in the first place? So it's it's going to continue to happen until there's a point where this this world, this city is only so big. You know, what do we do when we reach a point where the the class war gets too big? You know, and, and that's that's what I'm constantly thinking about. Um, um, and then there's going to be a point where these individuals who are continuing to get affected by billion dollar corporations they reach a point where they're saying enough is enough and when that happens what are we going to do and if you right now had the ear of city officials businesses and people who live in seattle and, and maybe not think that they could be homeless help them see your point of view i think the first thing i would say is make you know you asked me, like, if I had their ear. I, th I think that's exactly it. They have to make it more accessible to actually have conversations with them. Right now, public comment is at 2 p.m. on Monday. How is a single mom working three jobs expected to make a Monday 2 p.m. public comment to express the needs of her own lives and her children's lives? It's impossible. You know who can make 2 p.m. public comment meetings? It's these lobbyists who are paid to be at those public comment meetings. I can barely be at those meetings. I, I also work multiple jobs. And so how do we fix that? We need to be exposing those things, those barriers that make it hard for community to to come and advocate for themselves, right? I, I know I've gotten some write-ups from previous employers because I had to take three hours out of my Monday to be somewhere because I knew an issue was coming up, a vote was going to be um, had around a certain tax or a certain um, agenda item on the budget and I had to be there and we have to make those things happen and we have to sacrifice our own livelihoods to, to see that through while other individuals are getting paid the big bucks to be there in person. And so it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. And everything that the movement has won thus far, whether it's the head tax or, or putting people in elected office, um, 
has come through blood and sweat and tears. And we can't survive fighting like this forever. We need to change the game. We need to change how politics is done in this city and nationally. Any concluding thoughts? Elections are coming up. Local elections are going to be in 2019. Um, other elections are happening in 2018. I, you know, I encourage individuals, especially those who believe in affordable housing, especially those who believe in helping individuals who are suffering from the affordability crisis in Seattle to look into races that aren't your typical um, mayor position or senator position. You know, there are a lot of races that are up that is going to make a big impact to um, social justice issues here in the city. You know, one in particular I can think of is um, there's some momentum being built around the King County prosecutor race. And if you asked me a year ago, do I care about the race? I'd say no, because as an activist, I hate prosecutors. I, th I think the criminal justice system is deeply flawed at the root. And I still believe that. But at the same time, um, as I look more into the race and I see different organizations nationally, um, for example, like the Real Justice Pact that uh, activist uh, journalist Sean King has helped run since January 2018, running prosecutors across the country. And when I first heard about that, I was like, really? Prosecutors? And started looking more into it. It's like they have a lot of power. Um, that race is this year, you know, and we have uh, a prosecutor who's been in office for 11 years, run unopposed, and is Republican. And although he has put some, you know, semi-progressive things out on his platform over the past 11 years, um, in my opinion, his brand thus far has been regressive instead of progressive. I'm, I'm encouraged to see the current candidate running against him. Um, meet with people like the Sex Workers Outreach Project, um, homeless people who have been arrested just for being in poverty, you know, seeing different policies that can change. Um, I encourage community to look into races like that um, because we don't have a lot of time. Tashik, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. For more perspective on what it is like to clean up these encampments, I spoke to Ian Gordon whose local 1239 union represents the employees of Parks and Recreation. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to share more details about my upcoming feature-length documentary, On the Brink. The soundtrack for the movie is entirely from Seattle artists. Enjoy the story of history, hope, and determination, while also getting exposure to some of the incredibly talented musicians who have called Seattle home over the decades. Visit facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm for more details. That's facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. Now, join me as I sit down with Ian Gordon. I am here at the Labor Temple with Ian Gordon, the business manager of Labor's Local 1239. Ian, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. So we are here to talk about homelessness and its effect on the parks and recreation employees. But before we do that, let's hear a little bit more about you. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I've been doing this as far as a business manager role for about 10 years, but I've been working for the union since 1987. And our biggest group of city employees we represent is in the parks department. So that's about 300, 350 people. And tell me about Local 1239. Who else does that encompass? SDOT, City Light, SPU, FAS, we have different workers from different sites there, about 80 different classifications. 
And what's the role of, of Local 1239? What role do you play in the lives of your... Basically, it's just advocating, representing as far as in disciplinary meetings, uh, negotiating, just servicing the contract in general. And now let's talk about parks and recreation employees. Uh, we've seen an increase in homelessness in the city. Can you tell me a little bit about has that affected your employees or how it has, if it has? It, the main way that it has affected our members is just because we're the ones that are cleaning up the encampments. So the first time they did it was practically a military operation. They brought in all the big guns, and it was done under the freeway. And... Uh, the first day there was actually somebody fired a gun, so they didn't know if they were going to do it the second day. But other than that, our people have been doing it just in general for years, at least since Nichols, and that was the first big operations. But in order to do their general maintenance, they have to clear out what's there, so it makes their job twice as difficult. And then they need to call the police because there's a potential that somebody might have a weapon or attack. Because we've had one of our members that was blowing down in Occidental Square actually had a person jump on his back and try and bite him. And why do the Parks and Recreation employees engage these encampments? Why not just stick to the rest of the park? The majority of the time it's because, let's say, they're going to Park A, and they're told they need to clean up mow, whatever, pruning, and uh, there'll be potentially one or two tents there. If it's three tents, then it raises to a level that's different. But uh, other than that, it's just routine as far as being able to get to the work that they need to do. So it makes raises the cost of maintenance, and there's no particular budget item on there so they can't say well we spent x number of hours just doing this okay so you said you've been cleaning encampments since Nichols, which for the listener who may not be familiar that's over a decade ago mm -hmm. have things changed in the last couple of years absolutely it's become more of a city-wide issue because the number of homeless has increased every year and there's a burden naturally on our members to follow the guidelines which are being done by this transition team. They have an MDAR committee, which is multi-department, and uh, they're the ones who are supposed to be figuring out the battle plan of how to do the bigger encampments. So it's gone from just regular routine, which has been going on forever. Under Nichols, they had to clean an area on the side of Queen Anne, and that's when it really kicked in that these things were getting bigger, and people moved to Nicholsville to get out of the way, or however that went. But so, is this in the job description when people sign up to work for Parks and Recreation? Do they are they signing up to you know mow lawns and, and prune the natural environment, or are they made aware? Do they know that this is what? part of what they'll, do, they'll be doing. It's not specifically laid out in the job description, but what happens is we get premium pay for doing the encampments. And even though the members don't like it, we say it's our bargaining unit work because we've been doing it forever. So, because the typical bind we get in is that uh, if we don't announce it as our work, they bring in contractors. And currently, they brought in contractors. But our people end up cleaning up after them anyway. 
what kind of disputes or problems have you seen arise for some of your members? Just safety in general. You don't know who you're going to run into. It could be somebody that has some mental issues, and this is their last stand. You know, when people get cornered, doesn't matter who it is, they take it out on that person. That's why I say it's not unusual for some of our people to be attacked unexpectedly. And uh, the police are supposed to come when our members call them when they find a bigger encampment, but, you know, it's not exactly the police's main priority, and they generally stand back and just watch. So if somebody was going to get attacked, you know, there wouldn't be enough time between that and the police running to them. Any other ways in which your employees, the, the employees at Parks and Rec, have been affected by the homelessness crisis? Mainly just the cleanups. I mean, if if there was a magic answer, obviously we'd be all on board. But, I mean, quite frankly, a number of our members are borderline. They're on the edge anyway. They don't know if they're going to lose their house. So there's a lot of sympathy, obviously. So... Nobody likes to be doing this kind of work, but there you go. Any other challenges that they face other than somebody attacking them? Well, they have to have vaccinations for blood-borne diseases, and they need to have their protective equipment to make sure if they step on a needle or something that they're protected from that. So they get all the protected gear they need, uh, but it's still, you know, not a lousy job. You know, you're going through feces and other things like that. And uh, this is uh, just ongoing. It's not, the work's not going to go away because the problem's not going to go away. So our people are just having to deal with it. And then as problems come up, we'll have meetings with the department rather, let's say, regarding safety or some issues that come up and just try to deal with them case by case. So... It just puts everybody in a bind. And when you have the big committee that oversees it through the city, it doesn't really get down to our level other than the fact it confuses things as what they come up with as far as planning. In terms of resources, you've seen that there's an increase in the need. Uh, so they're not just mowing lawns anymore, that they're, they're also having to deal with encampments. Is there an increase in the number of employees or the number of hours? Nope. They haven't increased the hiring since the downturn. So we're with the same number of people, but with this too and new parks. So that just makes all their work that much more difficult because they get assigned to these bigger projects. And then to do this every day just adds to the problems. And then they there's a the whole issue of comfort stations. So they're having to close those up late at night. Tell me more about that. It's the bathrooms in the park where a lot of the illegal activity go, and that's very dangerous. And uh, our crew members have been assigned to close them up at night. Some of those are dangerous during the day, as you can imagine, Cal Anderson Park in particular. But uh, they're just doing what they can, the best they can, as far as being assigned. And the whole issue of budget you know, they don't know what they're going to be getting in the way of money because the city's just telling them this has to be done. And the two departments that spearheaded it were Parks and SDOT, which since SDOT is in confusion and uh, 
just generally there's not been any hiring for the crews. There's a lot of openings in management in the different areas of parks. I mean, the superintendent position is open. And uh, human resources, there's a lot of people missing. And so there's not a lot of continuity, which makes it that much more different, uh, difficult for the members. And can you talk a little bit about, have you heard any stories about how they're reacting to the uh, increase in workload with this uh, constant nature of the resources available? Completely tired and frustrated. They'd like to get some clear answers so they know, know exactly what's happening. And doesn't matter if it's a manager or whoever, the, the budget goes into this black hole for a period of time, and then the mayor announces what their budget is going to be in September. So quite frankly, everybody in Parks Department is doesn't know. They just submit the information and hope they get the money back. But it's since the Metro Park District passed, rather than the promise of getting more people for maintenance, they've focused all their energy on procedural and different things like that. Parks was also promised that the amount of money they were getting from the general fund wouldn't be taken away. And uh, the Metro Parks District was supposed to do what they need to do as far as budgeting for maintenance, and that hasn't happened. So that's a big frustration for the crews. You know, we're only this many people were being directed here or being directed there. I mean, once, you know, we're a big supporter of the Metro Park District, especially because it would get more people, and our members were really looking forward to giving the public a better product for their money. And instead, this comes along and takes away all that money. So you've raised some challenges that the parks uh, and parks and recreation employees and members of Local 1239 are facing. Why should the listener of this podcast care? Why should anybody who's not in that union care? Well, there was just an article in the paper recently about the group, the Green Partnership, and they've been doing restoration in different parks. And they're having difficulties because they'll come into an area that they've just fixed up and find there's tents in there. And uh, so it's just becoming more of, a more, more of a safety problem for the public in general because naturally the easiest place to camp out would be in a park. So you don't want your family to be going along in a park and all of a sudden come along, something like that. People don't like them in their neighborhoods. They don't like it in the parks. I mean, people buy real estate on the basis of being clo close to a park. And we, you know, police can't handle it. It's, and they can't handle it, uh, just don't have enough police. And uh, there's other priorities, but our members are always told just to call the police and wait. So that impacts the time as far as doing the maintenance. But we'd certainly have a preference of just getting the best product for the public as possible. And you said earlier that some of your members are at risk of being homeless. Can mm -hmm. you tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that and why that is? Well, I can tell you one particular member that came in and we were working on an issue and she said, I don't know if I can buy, buy diapers or food. You know, it's just things are that far along because she was a grandmother who was taken care of. 
several generations of her family. And uh, really, people are working paycheck to paycheck. Our people are the bottom end of the city wages. So, What would you like to see be done about this? Boy, that's a big question. Other than the big question of homeless that we all would like to see solved in some fashion or another, um, our members would like some clear direction and some staff to work with them to get this done in a timely fashion so they could go and do what they've been hired for. If you can get a message out to the everyday person in Seattle, the the listener of this podcast, about what they could do uh, that might make life better for the local 1239 Parks and Recreation employees, what would you ask of them? I would just say in general that uh, we're not responsible for this. We're just trying to deal with it. So it's not Parks' fault. We're doing the best what we can with what we've got. And as far as specifics, as far as what they have is just report that and it'll be taken care of. So it's difficult for everybody and uh, it is safety. So I just be careful if there's one that you're concerned about, let the city know and they'll get it going. If you can call police in ahead of time, boy, that would be terrific. But uh, because then we can get to it quicker. See, there should be quite frankly, for the navigation team, and I don't know if they have it or not, one number where the public could call with things like that, that would be a big help. Then there'd be immediate coordination between the navigation team and our people. I mean, the managers, crew chiefs, don't know what's going on on any given day. They're just trying to figure it out and work with what they've got. They don't know what the budget's going to be And uh, I would just say, know that it's trying to be dealt with as best it can. And that with the increasing population, it's very difficult for all of us. Nobody of our members wants to do this because it's, you know, they realize it could be them. And uh, it's just gotten to be such a big and dirty job that really is another title in itself. That's why they designated this particular crew with a different title in order to do this as one of the main parts of their job. So, If you can get a message out to city council and to the mayor's office, what would you ask of them? Hire more people. It's just uh, simple as that. No matter where it is in the grounds maintenance section, that's where the public wants to see their money spent. As far as them passing the Metro Park District, that was a clear message. So some of your employees in the local 1239, the Parks and Recreation employees, are at risk of being homeless or could be homeless. Are your employees or your organization doing anything to help those who are homeless? We donate to particular charities, one of them being Mary's Place. Labor Agency does a lot of work. I'm on the board for that. And... Uh, any place we think that might need money, we try to step up and donate to it. Is there any reason for hope? Just being cynical here. I was a gardener with the engineering department, which is what's called SDOT now, and I was working downtown. So I would be maintaining mini parks and other places. And when Reagan was in and mainstream everybody, that's what caused a lot of problems because those were more hardcore people 
really confused, uh, really needed mental help. And so those were just sent down the hill from Harborview. And uh, that's when a lot of things got more intense. So... So I don't know about this. So what what's what happened with Harborview and uh, well, there was there's mental health clinics up there for people who have problems, and Reagan pulled the plug on any funding on that, so there wasn't any resources left for these people who shouldn't be out on the street, just in general for their own safety, and uh, you saw a lot more dramatically strange behavior. I mean. Working downtown, I had to make sure my windows were rolled up in the car. Somebody grabbed something or be careful there was no tools lying around just because I didn't want to get hit with a shovel or something. People just, it was a whole different breed, let's say. And any concluding thoughts? I think you've done a great job of bringing up all the issues that were important to us. And uh, it's very difficult, and when you figure that it's not just the homeless, but potentially homeless people who are city employees, too. And uh, we do the best on our part on with the local, too, to donate to whoever in order to make sure people get food. But uh, it's a terrible problem, you know, and if somebody figures it out, that'd be... <laughs> but it, it's not easy to fix, and... Uh, even worse when you're taking people's belongings. That's the other thing that the cities in the first effort, which was a military operation, were very particular about was making sure anything that looked of value was boxed up and taken to a central location so it wasn't just thrown away. But there's just there was so many steps to all this, it just uh, became... Like I said, a military operation because everything was done on a big scale. And then they just used heavy equipment and dug everything out to make it seem like nothing had been there. But it just, it's ongoing. And uh, we're doing the best we can for the public. But it's difficult no matter where it is from the mayor's office and particularly. Parks is just doing a great job with what they know and what they have. Of all the departments, I would say they do the best job of figuring, trying to figure this out and look out for the workers' best interests. So, When a parks employee does start to clean up uh, a campsite or an encampment, what, what, what do they do? What is the process for what do they do with the, the belongings? And the Basically... You know, and it's how big. But if even if it's a small one, if something looks like it might be somebody's private property, uh, I mean, that could be just a sleeping bag, any coats, or things that look like mementos or something. Those are boxed up, and then they go to a central site. And on the bigger encampments, they'll put a sign up that says, if you're missing belongings, this is where it went to, and you can go there and find it hopefully. Ian, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Yep. Thank you very much. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. What do you think should be done with unsanctioned encampments? How has this issue affected you? I want to hear your voice. Reach out to me on Twitter at Prof Shulman or share your thoughts to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page.
Next week, we turn our attention to the businesses of Seattle. I speak to the president of the Downtown Seattle Association, John Scholes. Uh, I think this is solvable. Uh, I'm optimistic that uh, we can dramatically reduce the number of people that are living outside. This is not a normal condition in our history as a country. I also sit down with noted business leader Mike Slade. Uh, The interests of business have always sort of trumped all other interests when push comes to shove, which isn't how it seems at first. Seattle seems like a place with, you know, super liberal city council and this, quote, Seattle process, unquote, where everything takes forever and everybody has to get their opinion heard, even if they're a moron. Uh, and uh, and it seem, things seem to take a long time. But I've always seen that it's a city that is insanely focused on growth. You don't want to miss this episode as you'll get a surprising look at Seattle. Subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast in iTunes today. And please also like and follow the page for my upcoming feature-length documentary, On the Brink. Visit facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. Using interviews, archival images, and the music of Seattle tells an important Seattle story. Like the page at facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm so you could be among the first to see the movie. I hope you'll join me next week. In the meantime, I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.